What is libertarianism? A little while ago on The Curious Task, I spoke with Peter Jaworski. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm your host, Alex Aragona, and today I'm speaking with Peter Jaworski. Peter is an associate teaching professor at Georgetown University, where he teaches business ethics. Previously, he was a visiting research professor at Brown University, a visiting assistant professor at the College of Worcester, and an instructor at Bowling Green State University. Peter's academic work has been published in Ethics, Philosophical Studies, the Canadian Journal of Law and Jurisprudence, the Journal of Business Ethics, the Journal of Value Inquiry, Ethical Theory and Moral Practice, and others. Along with Jason Brennan, Peter is the author of Markets Without Limits, Moral Virtues and Commercial Interests. One of the earliest episodes of The Curious Task explored that with him. He is also one of the co-founders of the Institute for Liberal Studies. Peter, welcome back to The Curious Task. Thanks very much for having me again, Alex. It's a real pleasure. Uh, I love listening to The to the Curious Task podcast, and, uh, and it's really good to be back. So, Peter, today our question is, what is libertarianism? And this conversation is actually, you may recall, us making good on my request to you in episode two, because you were the second person that actually went out on the curious task as the guest. And I asked you to come back and talk about the different types of libertarian morality we said at the time. And, and you said yes. And of course, that feels like ages ago at this point, doesn't it? I mean, yes, it does, especially with the pandemic. It feels like a really long time ago. We were, in, we were in person last time, but we'll make do with this whole virtual thing, not at the ILS, which is a little sad. But, but I think this, this topic, either way, will keep us quite occupied. So I think the best place to start is really to get out there what you sort of mean by libertarian when the word is used. And, and what I mean by that is, is specifically from this angle. You actually said in one of your communiques with us, uh, the point is that while there are some moral convictions or moral views, political moralities, that are sufficient for libertarianism, you know, self-ownership, non-aggression, axiom, whatever the case may be, none are necessary. So from that perspective, what do you mean by libertarian? Can we elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. So I, I've been playing with a title for this for a while, and the title that I've come up with is like libertarianisms, like plural libertarianism. The view is basically that, like, give me any moral conviction, any view about ethics, pick any moral theory out there whatsoever, and I can show you how that moral theory could, given certain kinds of empirical beliefs, lead to a libertarian outcome, meaning that it could lead you to, lead, uh, to endorse what I like to call the libertarian set of political institutions, right? That's basically what that means. Now, there are some views that are sufficient, as you said, for libertarianism. So, for example, um, self-ownership. If you read Bas van der Bossen's entry in the Stanford Political, uh, in the Stanford uh, Encyclopedia of Philosophy, if you read that entry, you'll see that he spends a lot of time on self-ownership. So if you embrace the idea that people own themselves much like we might own a television set or something like that, then it'll turn out that many libertarian political institutions will fall out as a matter of like logical necessity. Right? So it has to follow if you embrace the view that people are self-owners, it, it, right? it has to follow 
that they are to decide what happens to and with their body, for example. So in terms of drug policy, the correct policy, if you embrace the ethics of self-ownership, is going to be that like adults can make whatever decisions they want. And so cocaine, heroin, and so on should be legal. So that's one example of a moral view that necessarily leads you to embrace, again, what I call the libertarian set of political institutions or call them libertarian policy conclusions, if you prefer, right? That view has, you know, if you embrace that, then this follows automatically. However, there are no moral views, none whatsoever, that are necessary to come to libertarian political conclusions to embrace the libertarian set of political institutions or libertarian public policy. Now, you asked me at the outset, like, what is libertarianism? And there's a couple of things to say here. Um, so we make certain kinds of distinctions within philosophy that a lot of people don't. So when ordinary people talk about libertarianism, they often uh, are talking about those public policy conclusions. Sometimes they are talking about ethics. Sometimes when we talk about libertarians, most people associate it with either like a natural rights theory, right? A natural rights moral theory or a self-ownership theory, which is related or like the non-aggression axiom or something like that, or the non-aggression principle. We can go into detail on each of these later if you'd like, right? That's a conflation between like basically libertarian political morality on the one hand. So that's a kind of morality that is relevant to public policy or relevant to political institutions on the one hand, uh, with the, the, the set of public policies or the set of like concrete recommendations that libertarians might might give or like right. what the government is permitted to do. But that second set is about public policy. So sometimes when, when we say, you know, this person is a libertarian, what we mean is they want like, um, they think the government should do less, right? That's a public policy conclusion. At other times, they mean something like this person is a natural rights person, or they embrace the ethics of self-ownership or the ethics of non aggression. So that's a conflation, but that is what people in general mean when they use the word libertarian. But I, but today and throughout our conversation together, I want to try to show you <clears throat> that not only is no moral view necessary for libertarianism, but I can show you examples of individuals throughout history who have embraced those moral views and have still come to libertarian uh, conclusions about what the public policy should be, about what the government is allowed to do, and so on. So that's basically the broad thesis. So, so just so just so I understand that correctly, and I'm understanding you completely, that basically the idea, in short, is that you're a libertarian if you adopt uh, views on public institutions and public policy that we can broadly call libertarian public policy ideas and libertarian public you know, institution ideas. That's, I, of course, there's nuance, but that's basically it in a yeah. nutshell. How you arrive at that point is a completely different That's thing. a totally different story. That's exactly right. If you endorse the libertarian set of political institutions, what do we call you? I don't understand what we would call you apart from a libertarian. Right. Like that just is your political philosophy. And oh, by the way, I think that's true of very many other uh, political philosophies as well. Now, political philosophy consists of a moral view coupled with a set of public policy pronouncements, right? Everybody, I, I am not saying that every libertarian embraces just any old moral view. That's that's one confusion that I've confronted quite a bit. No, no, no. I'm not saying that at all. Right. Okay. I am saying that there is a path from any moral view 
to libertarian policy conclusions. That's the view. So while there are some moral views that are sufficient, like you got to be a libertarian if you're going to be a self-ownership person, or you got to be a libertarian if you're going to embrace the non-aggression axiom or something like that, right? Right. None are necessary. You don't, you can also be a libertarian and embrace like a different moral view. So some are sufficient, none are necessary. And I think that's very important for Yvonne because it's, that's exactly right. You know, someone might, if, if, if they're not fully in tune with exactly what we're saying here, maybe, maybe so I, I said this to someone in passing in, in a short form way, not, not the nice explanation you gave at the beginning. Someone would be like, oh yeah, well, what if you're a fascist? Could you then be a libertarian? So, and that's not what you're saying. You're not saying believe in anything you want and we'll get to libertarianism, of course. I mean, fascism isn't, I, I mean, of course, fascism comes with some kind of moral view attached to it, right? But fascism is about policies. It's about like a, the kinds of public policies that you embrace. Right. Right. So, too, with like every political view, liberalism, conservatism and so on, it, there's like a set of political institutions, a set of like public policies that people endorse. And if I look at the set of things that you endorse, the set of public policies that you endorse, the things that you think the government should do, I can tell you what your politics are. But I can't just by looking at what you think the government should do, conclude anything about your moral views, except for the ones that are sufficient for that political view. I, ho- I hope that's I hope that's clear, right? Yeah, that does make sense. I can sense. say that if you think the government should be allowed, if you think the government should be permitted to tell adults that they are not allowed to sell their kidney, for example, or that they are not permitted to do cocaine because it's bad for them or whatever, right? Then I can conclude, oh, okay, this person does not embrace the non-aggression axiom. This person does not embrace self-ownership. So I can exclude some moral views just by looking at the like public policies that you endorse. But that's not, but I can't conclude with any certainty that there is some specific one and only one moral view that you thereby embrace. No, that, that's excellent. I think that kind of reverse way of looking at it too really helps. Before we jump into a couple specific examples that I, that I want to get into with you, I just wanted to your thoughts on, on on another general point, which is, do you think that one of the challenges with many people, I, I can actually say, having a broader sense of the different types of libertarian morality and separating that from the idea of what we're talking about here today, which is you could still be a libertarian and have a different set of morality. It's about the, the public institutions. Is, is that because in your experience and in your view, do you think that people start their quote unquote libertarian journey and thinking in many cases by either following a certain school of thought of morality or finding that appealing, then kind of adding their politics on top of that. And this is sort of where the the conflation happens, where people say, I'm a libertarian, because their own personal journey has taken them through a set of moral conclusions. And then there's a natural thing that happens where they, they come to their political conclusions out of that. But all the way, they seem to be comfortable calling that whole thing libertarian, when in reality, again, working with your definition, just that end part is libertarian, the, the, the part about the public institution. So all that to say, do you think that's where a lot of people are so, quite frankly, uh, fast and loose with that conflation? Is it because that's how their journeys often start, their own moral conclusions and then public institutions, and they call that whole thing libertarianism? I really like this question, and they, it sort of pulls me out of my area of expertise. So you and I are going to know the same amount about this, but I do have thoughts about it, and I do want to share those thoughts with you. So this is basically a question about the psychology of politics and about the sociology of like the libertarian movement in particular, right? So with respect to the psychology, I think people pick teams before they figure out what their moral views are, right? 
So it isn't the case with, with very few exceptions. And I think those exceptions are people who are naturally drawn to like fields like philosophy and want to, they are drawn that way because they go step by step. They go, what's reasonable here? What's a reasonable moral view? And then they accept the conclusions from that argument. But most people don't do that. Most people don't sit down and go, well, what's true about ethics? No, no, no. Uh, most people begin by being like, what do people that I like think? Like it's, a, it's about affiliation with other people. It's about like, this is my team, right? It's sort of like, let me give a poor analogy, but like, how come, how come I'm a Toronto Maple Leafs fan? That's actually a real question. Like, what, why am I, I am actually a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. So like, what explains my fandom? Is it because I like the colors, like the blue and white of the Toronto Maple Leafs? Is there some story about the like nobility of this hockey team or some moral story? No, absolutely not. I was, you know, I lived in Oshawa, which is in the like 905 belt. When I came to Canada as an immigrant, it's like we moved to Scarborough and then to Oshawa, that's Toronto Maple Leafs area. So of course I rooted for the Toronto Maple Leafs. But the explanation for that is all like, it has, it has not, it's not like I sat down and went, well, which hockey team am I going to be a fan of? That's not what happens. Right. So by analogy, I think a lot of people pick their political teams um, in the same way. And then afterwards, try to figure out like um, try to figure out a story, a narrative about why they prefer those teams. Now here, let me, let me give you yet another, another analogy, which is to personality types. It is true. If you look at the work of, of somebody like Jonathan Haidt, and he does the, like um, the moral foundations, the moral foundation story. It is true that like the people who tend to be um, liberal, for example, have higher are higher on the like care harm axis they're higher on the like fairness whatever axis i don't remember the five and just for clarity here sorry to interrupt you just for clarity here for Melissa, you mean like the liberal and the traditional classical liberal context of this podcast sense not capital l like american liberal kind of thing we always have to make that distinction now unfortunately i'm so glad i'm so glad you brought that up no i mean the american liberal the the american sense of liberal meaning not partisan, not yet, but progressives. Let me, use okay. a, let me use a concept that's going to apply better. Progressives are higher on like care harm. They're higher on fairness. They're lower on things like loyalty and authority, et cetera. Conservatives in the like standard, both American and Canadian sense, um, conservatives are higher on authority and loyalty and, and so on, right? Libertarians are higher when it comes to like liberty, right? Um, and and lower when it comes to authority. Now the the question is like those are in a way those are awfully close to something like personality types. Of course, those are moral convictions, and the way that the that particular thing is phrased is about uh, morality. But it's closer to something like um, you know your personality, and people who have similar kinds of personalities tend to then fall into certain kinds of political movements. But you wouldn't say. You can conclude reasonably from the fact that somebody is a member of a particular political tribe that probably they have a particular kind of personality. And the reason why you can do that is because people sort into those political tribes based in part on, on their personalities. But there's no like logical connection between the personality type and the political 
view. There's no logical or necessary connection between those things. Like right. you can be grumpy and a conservative or liberal or libertarian, right? You can be compassionate and be a liberal, a libertarian or a conservative. But it turns out, given the sociology of all of these movements, that people tend to cluster together based upon a number of things, including similarities with respect to uh, personality. And you'll find a similar kind of clustering when it comes to certain kinds of moral views. And so as a matter of fact, most libertarians are going to be something like natural rights libertarians or are going to be something like self-ownership libertarians or non-aggression axiom libertarians. That's going to be true for most of them. But just as with personalities, my claim anyways is that there is no necessary connection between any moral view um, um, and libertarianism, with the exception of the ones that are sufficient for libertarianism. Right. So, so to tie that knot off, as far as like the, the first part of the question was concerned, where I talked about where does some of this conflation come from is, I guess, if it's like you were saying, if people are, if people do end up sorting themselves into a group in the ways you described, and it has a lot to do the personality type and things like that. I guess a lot, a lot of the idea is that when you ask them if they're a libertarian, they don't say, hmm, that's a good question. Do I support such and such institutions and separate that from my morality? What they're in fact saying is, am I a libertarian in the sense it's a little more identity based. They, they, so so that, that's where a lot of the morality conflation comes in, I would say, too, then. Per, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And we form these like we form these teams and we care about our teams and very few people. You know, Jason Brennan um, in Against Democracy has this like three way division between people. Um, hooligans, hobbits, and Vulcans, right? Is that what it is? Right. Hooligans, hobbits, and Vulcans. Yes, I think that's correct. And most of us are hobbits, right? And hobbits just kind of, they just have friends, you know, and they get together with their friends and they're, they don't, they're not very high information, right? And if, and if my neighbors are, you know, if my neighbors are liberals, then that'll make it more likely that I'll be a liberal. If my neighbors are conservatives, then, you know, I'll be more likely to be a conservative. Notice that like if your first introduction to libertarianism is to somebody that you like, like somebody that you like is like, this person's a nice person. I really like them. And they're like, and they're like, I'm a libertarian. And then that makes that person go, huh, maybe I am a libertarian too. And then when they read the arguments for libertarianism, they are much more sympathetic because they're like, you know, I met this amazing human being, this person that I would love to be friends with. And they embrace this view. They are awesome. I want to be awesome too. So like, so then I'm like much more partial to that particular kind of view. And then, right. Yeah. That's a message to everyone listening. If you want to spread libertarian ideas, watch the uh, eight paragraph rants and caps lock because you might just be turning someone off of what you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, in my view, we all have a moral obligation to be decent and kind and just like a, a nice person in general, right? So like you should be nice and decent and in general because that's like your obligation as a human being. Never mind that it's also useful in like some kind of strategic sense. Oh, absolutely. I agree with that. I, I guess everything we've been talking about so far is why we can say in in libertarianism as a as a quote unquote political movement why there's so much sometimes arguing for what I often call the heart and soul of the word libertarian, right? There's a lot of people of talking about what it means to be a true libertarian and it's very interesting to have this conversation with you because it occurs to me uh, although I felt this sort of before, but now it's more crystallized, is that what they say when they talk about what it means if so-and-so is really libertarian or not is not all the time 
the institutions part of the discussion. It's what their moral view is. Yeah. Mm, let me say a little bit more about that too, which is that like um, people insist this discussion about like pure purist libertarian, the like who is a pure libertarian, I find I'm grumpy about it. Fair enough. I am grumpy about it mostly because I think there's a whole bunch of like non-necessary things that get um, – run into this discussion too, like uh, from things like our fashion sense or something like people insist that like libertarians have to prefer certain kinds of clothing to the symbols that we latch onto. And the one that I want to raise because it's going to be controversial, I think is like the way that libertarians treat guns, not only like here's here's like the policy view people should have a right to own uh, uh, guns for self defense or or for like whatever um, whatever other reason not just for hunting, right? Um, but furthermore, people insist that other libertarians also regard guns as like a symbol of liberty, and I find that strange, right? Because there are so many so many things that could be symbolic of wanting individual liberty, um, but people have uh, sort of circled around this one particular thing and like insisting that, so I don't have a gun. I don't, I'm not particularly drawn to guns. I live in West Virginia right now. I'm allowed to like shoot guns. I'm not, I'm not like when people are like, Hey, um, do you want to shoot some guns this weekend? I'm like, I'd rather curl. And by the way, I hate curling. (laughs) I hope, I hope my friend, Matt Bufton is listening to this and like, I understand that a lot of Canadians really love curling. Curling sucks, right? Curling's terrible. I hope you agree with me, Alex. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you do. I actually probably have one of the oddest views on curling ever, which is that for some reason, I feel like I pr- would prefer to watch it than do it. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. But when I watched, I've seen curling on TV and I'm like, this is interesting for some reason. And I cannot explain why. So there, so, so. Yeah. So then it's like aesthetic preferences are supposed to also be part of what makes somebody a libertarian. But I think if anybody just sort of pauses for a second yeah. and goes, oh, you that's that's like, do you like chocolate or vanilla? We don't insist that like people prefer chocolate if they're going to be libertarian or whatever. We don't right. insist on that. But we do have certain kinds of like aesthetic norms, for example, or certain kind of like symbolic norms. Like if you're a libertarian, then you have to love like the symbol of gut. But you but you don't, right? There's no like necessary requirement there. I'm going to take the break right now because we're going to jump into the, the that good chunk of meat I keep teasing at the beginning with all the libertarian morality. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Peter Jaworski today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters, as always, on Patreon, including Andy Crooks, Bryce Tingle, and Christopher McDonald. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Peter Jaworski. So, Peter, I think the first half was great. Um, I think we we talked about a lot of different things. We talked about what you mean when you say the word libertarian, and we talked about 
couple of different reasons we and, and you think that people might sort themselves with that label, but not necessarily mean just the political institutions. Of course, one thing that you mentioned at the beginning, one thing that you have said before is that you claim that you can show us that how when we add certain beliefs uh, to uh, any morality or, or talk about it a little further, ultimately, that can lead someone to endorse libertarian institutions and policies. That is to say that there, in many cases, isn't a specific morality that can be excluded uh, from being one that could lead someone to libertarian institutions. Again, as you said at the top of the episode, there are some, but there's many that we can say will still lead you to libertarianism without being outrightly excluded. So let's get into some of that stuff now. I wrote down a lot of things that I know that you've mentioned to me that uh, that we could talk about. I'm actually going to read them all out because I'm not even sure if we'll get into all of them for this episode. And, and you pick one and we'll go with it. So we could talk about, Peter, consequentialism, including utilitarianism, Rawlsian social justice, uh, Kantianism, uh, virtue ethics, sentimentalism, contractarianism, communitarianism, altruism, divine command theory, uh, selfishness. I have a couple more, but I'm going to stop there. Let's again, not sure if we can get to them all, but but everyone listening, that's that's the point to say that even if we don't get to talk about them all today, Peter has noted that all of these are up for discussion. So if we don't get them all, they apologize. Pick one, Peter. Let's talk about two things, what it is at a high level, and you tell us how we can connect that to libertarianism. Right. Um, so let me say something by way of a preface. Sure. I call this the the ought state gap. Okay. Ought as in what we ought to do and state as in like political institutions. And I insist that there is a gap between them, right? I'm playing on the like fact value distinction or what David Hume called the is ought right. gap. So it's the ought state gap. And my claim there is the same as uh, what we said at the very beginning. That like there is no logically necessary bridge between any um, moral view and like certain kinds of conclusions about what the state ought to do. That's broadly the ought state gap, right? There are only a few views that of necessity tell us what the government may not do. So certain kinds of natural rights theory tell us what the government may not do. But, but on the positive side, there is no, there's always going to be that gap. And to demonstrate this, I can pick some of the moral views that you've brought up, and I'll, I'll try to I'll try to give you like a a paradigmatic person to match the moral view that everybody, by wide agreement, is going to agree is either a libertarian or is in the libertarian orbit, right? So, um, uh, or an institution, right? So let's go with divine command theory. Right. Divine command theory is just the view that what makes a particular kind of action right is that God said we got to do it. Right. What is good is what God says is good. And what is right is what God says is the right thing to do. That one, in a way, is really clear because, OK, so how can you get to libertarianism from divine command theory? Well, if God says we have to have libertarian institutions, then what do we have to have? <laughs> answer libertarian, libertarian institutions right institutions right so at least theoretically it's possible that there are christians who insist that god does command something like that but we can be like much more practical and for example the acton institute in the united states is i think like a christian organization that is within the orbit of like libertarian views they have very many libertarian views you can read uh, the bible and you can come to libertarian conclusions right that's possible 
right? Yep. Like many people do, in fact. There are so many Christian libertarians. You could say the same thing about the Quran. There are Muslim libertarians, right? You can say the same thing about people who are Jewish, right? There are Jewish libertarians and so on and so forth for like any religion uh, that you care to pick. So clearly divine command theory is in a way kind of simple and and easy, right? And people can try to come up with uh, uh with exceptions, like for example, um, I'm not going to re- remember Bible verses. So you help me if you know any. Okay, I'll try. Let's see. That like conflict that that on their face appear to conflict with libertarianism. So so let's focus on the Old Testament for a second. And there's like a we're not supposed to eat shellfish. Or like in Leviticus has a bunch of rules. Yes, about like homosexuality is the way it's interpreted, right? Etc. Right. The question is that about. What like is that about personal morality or is that about what the government ought to mandate? People go in different directions on this, but for Christian libertarians, right, and for Jewish libertarians who take the Old Testament as the like launching off point, they say that is actually about your personal morality. And they say more than that. They say that if there is a law against like shellfish, then the reason why people don't eat shellfish isn't because the Old Testament tells you to, right? But because maybe you're afraid of punishment. And right. so in fact, you are not living a, a godly life, as it were, right? When you just obey the law because you're afraid of the punishment. So the Old Testament and the New Testament has a number of like moral prescriptions. It tells you to behave in certain kinds of ways. Now, if we make the government do it that way, then it's not the case that you are living a moral life because it's not enough that you just do what the commandments tell you to. You're supposed to do the commandments, what the commandments tell you to do for the right reasons. The reason that you like don't eat shellfish if you don't eat shellfish, for example, is because you are uh, you read the Old Testament and you are trying to live a godly life. Say, I use shellfish as like a silly example. There are, there are others, right? So that's one that's one kind of example. Let's talk about another one, which is like consequentialism. Um, consequentialism is the view that what makes something like a particular action right is that it brings about more of the good, right? And then different specific types of consequentialism are going to have different kinds of theory about uh, theories about what is good. And the most obvious and the most like historically popular version of consequentialism is utilitarianism. So it has the same structure, maximize the good or bring about the most good. And then it has a theory about what makes something good, which is uh, old school utilitarianism was hedonism. So pleasure and avoiding pain, right? So what is a good action? The one that brings about, uh, what is good? Pleasure is good. What is bad? Pain is bad. What makes an action the right action? Uh, If it maximizes pleasure or minimizes pain, right? So that's the theory. And in principle, notice, right, you might not be a libertarian if you adopt utilitarianism. And lots of people say, well, if you're a utilitarian, what if you think that like the way to bring about the most pleasure is to have a really robust welfare state and to like, I don't know, lots of things that the government might be able to do. That's true. But like, please notice that John Stuart Mill, for example, is is like a paradigmatic instance of a utilitarian 
who came to libertarian conclusions, especially in his book on liberty. And notice what you needed, just as in the divine command theory sense, you need a belief about the content of what God tells you to do. So that's what will determine whether you end up a libertarian or not. So in this case, you need a story about the empirical facts. And if you think that, like, for example, freedom of speech, freedom of expression leads to good outcomes understood as more pleasure, less pain, then you're going to embrace freedom of speech and freedom of expression, which is one of the like public policy views that are um, like libertarians embrace. And John Stuart Mill did that, right? And in his book on liberty, he's like, look, we can't shut people up because for one, you know, um, we can learn something from people who are in the wrong. Uh, the truth will win out in a marketplace of ideas. Uh, we might be wrong about what we believe is true. And so having people who express um, positions that not everybody holds or very few people hold or like minority views can like lead us to truth or whatever. So he gives all of these, like he makes all of these empirical claims. And the reason why he ends up as a libertarian on, on at least the issue of freedom of speech is because he thinks that like the empirical facts are going to lean in the direction of more liberty. And to take a more contemporary example, someone who I enjoy very much, take Dr. Chris Fryman, who has appeared on The Curious Task. Chris Fryman is a utilitarian and Chris Fryman is a libertarian, right? So here are two examples. I mean, natural rights theory. So that's one where it's it's sufficient. So if you, if you think something like a natural rights theory is that like people are born with certain kinds of rights. And amongst them are rights to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, if you want Thomas Jefferson style natural rights, property, if you're more into somebody like John Locke, for example, uh, or Robert Nozick, right? Those people ended up being libertarian, but it, in a way, it doesn't matter what the empirical facts are, right? If you think that like you have certain kinds of natural rights, then the government isn't allowed to do certain things, even if the world, say, would be a better place. And one interpretation from that point of view is actually that the uh, the government existing at all is a violation of those rights. Like, like that, that's not all of them, but as a subsection of that group. Yeah, absolutely. Like the yeah, so anarchists, right? Anarcho-capitalists specifically, say, yeah, exactly. are going to think that. Yeah, and I should say, by the way, because I, I think I misspoke a bit. Um, we can't do certain things on a natural rights view. I had said, uh, even if it makes the world a better place, and that begs the question against people who are natural rights theorists, and I don't want to do that because they're going to say that the world would be a worse place because it would be the kind of world where these natural rights are being violated. Right. That's going to be their position. So I should say instead that like even if we might live longer, even if more people would be wealthier, even if we might eliminate poverty. And these are all things that natural rights theorists are going to agree that like poverty is bad, that like um, um, wealth is good, happiness is good and so on. They're going to agree with that, but they're going to say that there are certain kinds of side constraints on our pursuits of those good things. Those side constraints are our rights. And so even in the pursuit of good things, there are certain rights that we cannot violate in the process, right? So I just want to make clear that from the natural rights perspective, the world would not be a better place if governments were busy violating rights. That's like Robert Nozick's view, John Locke's 
And then somebody like Ayn Rand is like a, a, um, a ethical egoist, right? Uh, sometimes she's a little bit like a kind of Aristotelian in a way, right? But she thinks that like, you know, we each of us um, have a right to pursue our own interests, right? And we are, in, in a way, we have to pursue it in a rational way. So we have to be, and, and she insists that like selfishness is good, not bad. So contrary to what most people say, she says selfishness is good, but she means something very specific um, by selfishness, right? Which is captured by like, you know, rational self-interest and like what is in fact good for you and so on. But Ayn Rand is clearly a libertarian, right? There's no question that that's, uh, that's the set of public policies that she endorses. Those are the political institutions that she endorses. Adam Smith and David Hume are like sentimentalists. Broadly speaking, I'm going to do a really poor job of describing sentimentalism to you. So I'm just going to skip it. But like you can look into it if you'd like uh, somebody like Michael Humer. So let me contrast Michael Humer, who's a philosopher at the University of Colorado at Boulder, is a friend of mine. He's a great philosopher. I recommend his book, Ethical Intuitionism. Right. He says that like we have certain kinds of intuitions, They're like gut feelings, like we feel a certain way about certain kinds of things. And at the right level of abstraction, that is where the truth about ethics comes from. Right? And he's like, that's true more broadly. And for people who are angry about intuitionism, and, and I will include uh, my old friend, uh, Jan Narvison in this camp. So Jan Narvison is opposed to intuitionism. His view is contractarianism. I promise I will describe each of these in a second. Okay. But for now, um, uh, Jan Narvison thinks that like intuitionism is uh, is garbage. We can't ground our moral views on intuitionism, he says. But somebody like Michael Humer is going to respond to somebody like Jan Narvison by saying, well, you know, I accept a whole bunch of different intuitions. And for you, Jan Narvison, you rest the entire like moral story on one giant intuition, okay? So intuitionism is like, uh, we've got a bunch of intuitions. Intuitions are actually epistemically how we can know the truth about ethics. And somebody like Michael Humer comes to libertarianism from intuitionism, and he thinks that he can show you how you too are going to come to those conclusions from uh, ethical intuitionism as a, as a grounding for, for that view. Jan Arverson is a contractarian, and for him, right, what matters is agreement. It's like, what would we agree to? So uh, John Rawls is also uh, a contractualist rather than a contractarian, but it's similar. It's like, what would we, uh, what, what would we hypothetically agree to? And for Jan Narvison, it's like, what would people in fact agree to? Uniformly, everybody, no exception. Other contractualists and contractarians are going to say, what would people agree to under some idealized situation? So they will say, supposing you knew all the facts, what would you agree to? If you were rational, right, what would rational people agree to? But Jan Arvison says, no, 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 never mind all this idealization. What, in fact, would people uniformly and universally agree to? And for him, the answer is that, like, you can't take my stuff and you can't punch me in the face. Fair enough. <laughs> That's what, nothing else, nothing else 
will you get universal agreement on? And the view that like, you can't take my stuff and you can't punch me in the face, that, that'll lead you to like libertarian political institutions quite naturally, right? Now, Michael Humer is gonna look at Jan Narvison and say, well, why should I do what I agree to do? <laughs> right, it's like Jan Narvison has a, a, one giant intuition, which is that like, you gotta keep your promises, right? So, so Michael Humer is going to say that's like an intuition. I should add like a few other people like Roderick Long is like an Aristotelian virtue ethics person. Somebody like Ludwig von Mises is a utilitarian, right, in terms of his moral views, but definitely a libertarian in terms of the public policy prescriptions. Friedrich Hayek is more or less like a John Rawls kind of person. He's like a bleeding heart kind of liberal, and yet the institutions that he endorses are uh, libertarian. Um, Milton Friedman is a weird one. Yeah, he's the sometimes because, one we were talking about before. Yeah, Milton Friedman is like, uh, when he's doing his work in economics, it's pretty clear that he's like a consequentialist and a kind of almost utilitarian kind of person. And in that economics work, he embraces libertarian political institutions. He argues in favor of the free and open market, right? Uh, free trade, you know, um, uh, freer immigration. We can talk about immigration too, if you want, right? But like, um, but in his like explicitly political philosophy work, he's closer to like a natural rights theorist or something. In like capitalism and freedom, he says people have certain rights or whatever. So Milton Friedman is like sometimes natural rights, sometimes uh, consequentialist slash uh, utilitarian. So we've gone through like a, a big list of people here. I should add like, uh, you know, John Tomasi at Brown University and Matt Zwolinski uh, at the University of San Diego, right? Those two philosophers are kind of, I mean, maybe we would describe, we would describe them as bleeding heart libertarians. They take social justice, justice issues very seriously, but you might also kind of describe them as like quasi Rawlsians in terms of their moral outlook. But their conclusions are decidedly libertarian. So let me summarize everything that we've done here. Yeah, for sure. First, I've given you examples of moral views, and I've given you paradigmatic instances of people who embrace those moral views and come out the other end as libertarians. In most of these cases, the question of whether or not you should be a libertarian doesn't hang on what moral view you adopt, because I've just shown you that there are a whole bunch of paradigmatic libertarians who reject the non-aggression axiom, Yeah, right? Who reject self-ownership, who reject natural rights theory in favor of some alternative moral view, and yet nevertheless end up endorsing the very same political institutions that natural rights theory, self-ownership people, and so on uh, embrace. So then what does it depend upon? I hope it's clear at this point that it'll depend on empirical facts. So um, if you're a utilitarian and you think that like libertarian institutions are going to maximize pleasure or whatever, then you'll be a utilitarian libertarian, right? If you embrace some other, if you're a communitarian and you put pride of place on uh, our relationships within a community, if you think that having a smaller government leads to more private community, then you're going to be like, oh yeah, I'm really sympathetic to the libertarian uh, to the libertarian position. So we need to know, yeah, yeah, what makes something, what do you think is good? What makes something right? We need to know that. Then we need to ask you like, huh, tell me, how do you think the world actually works? What do you think would happen 
if the government were to uh, restrict speech? Would that be a good thing or a bad thing, right? And then depending on what you have to say there, depending on your empirical beliefs, you can come out a libertarian on the other end. Ta-da, I hope I have shown what <laughs> I am trying to show. What I think is that all roads, any roads could lead libertarians. Put differently, if you tell me your moral views, like you, 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 might, you might still be a libertarian. So if you're arguing with someone about say self-ownership or something like that, because you want to convince that person of libertarian conclusions, right? You needn't have the debate at the level of ethics. I mean, of course you should, because that matters more, right? The truth about ethics is more important than the political institutions that we embrace. What we are obligated to do, what is good, what is the right thing for me to do is way more important than like what kind of political institutions should we have? So you should definitely have moral disagreements, but don't have them as like a proxy war over libertarianism. Right. Actually, and, and that's an, that's, I'm glad you said exactly that, because as you were talking, I wanted to bring up this point here that at the end of the day, I, I agree. I think this is a great way to look at things personally, and I agree with, with, with a lot of it, if not all of it. So I sort of wanted to bring up a point about libertarianism and politics, you know, specifically libertarianism as, as a political movement in the in this in in relation to our discussion here. I saw someone once say, and this was on Facebook, and I and they are what I would call someone within the libertarian circles, libertarian movement. I'm not going to say their name because it's on their Facebook. It's privacy. I don't want to get into it. But one thing that they've said that's kind of resonated with me is that when it comes to libertarians as a political movement, uh, especially in electoral politics, is that it the movement itself can seem to decide if at the end of the day, and I think specifically here we can think of the movement in the states, let's just call it the Libertarian Party, for instance, for the sake of this discussion. It can't decide if it wants to be something that wins elections or a philosophy club. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Now, putting aside anybody listening or your, even yourself, Peter, what you think is um, the best type of morality or what you consider yourself morally or uh, or whether or not we would all agree with libertarian institutions for a second. I think it's at least in my view, that's correct. That's one of the problems here. And I think our conversation sits beside that problem that at the end of the day, if you do believe in libertarian institutions, as far as public policy is concerned, then the last thing that's productive is to sit around and have this conversation we just had ad nauseum without going to win an election. That's not to say what we just did is unimportant. It is to say that when we get to that political institution part, that if that's what we, quote unquote, as libertarians are occupying most or almost all of our time with, how's that going to help with implementing these libertarian institutions. I know that was a lot for me to say, but do, do you agree with what I'm saying or do I sound crazy? But that's kind of really what it's coming down to to me when it comes to the political movement that is libertarianism in, let's say, North America. So I think you're exactly right about basically all of that. I'm going to say a few things that <clears throat> are unrelated to the things that we said at the beginning uh, or in the middle, I should say, and just harken back to what we talked about at the very beginning. Sure. Because there, there is the question of like the sociology of the movement and then a practical question about what's best in terms of getting the right policies in place. So in terms of the sociology of the movement, look, like we all want to be around other people and we want to spend time with like-minded people. It gives us a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. And like pushing for certain kinds of public policies is a really like meaningful 
thing that like people love to uh, engage in. I think the Libertarian Party, it is like it's supposed to fulfill like different goals. So on the one hand, it's like, um, you know, if you're a political party, then the newspapers want to talk to you. Like if you're just like, hey, I'm Alex, I'm a libertarian, right? The CBC isn't going to be like, oh, oh, we better talk to Alex. He's a libertarian. And yeah, nobody cares. Nobody exactly. cares. Yeah, but yeah. there's there's all these like weird, there's all these like political parties and it's election time. And so then it's like libertarian, what's that? Let's go talk to them. So on the one hand, the libertarian party fulfills the function of letting more people know about libertarianism. And so sometimes when I talk to people like that, they say, look, the, the primary function of the Libertarian Party isn't to win elections. The primary function of the Libertarian Party is to spread like the philosophy of liberty, right? That this is the like most effective way to spread the philosophy of liberty. Okay, so that's like one purpose or function. And I think that's I think that's broadly right. I mean, the first thing that I did, by the way, when I came across libertarianism as like an undergrad, the first thing I did was to Google it. And the first thing that I found is the, the United States Libertarian Party. And so I just, yeah, so I, so I like looked that up and I looked at that, right? So in a way, I think, and my personal experience resonates with this, in a way, this like we are, uh, we're dis- distributing the message in ways that like the media likes. Right. Which is the the vehicle of the political party. But but let me let me just let me just stop there for a sec, drill into that a bit, because you've just done a great job of training me on this thinking for the past forty or fifty minutes. When we say about spreading the philosophy of liberty, are we talking about one of the functions of the libertarian parties is to spread the philosophy of like specific libertarian public institutions, or are you referencing a specific type of morality there? I think that's the problem people get caught up on. So this is something that I would consider a frustration, right? So just as like people people love to ask questions like um what are libertarians like? What are conservatives like? What are liberals like? Oh, liberals are people who care a lot about other people and are compassionate. Conservatives are people who really love authority and, and loyalty and really love uh, leaders or whatever, right? Libertarians are like conservatives who smoke pot or something. They're like rebellious, you know, whatever. Notice that like people want to know those things, but those are like personality types who cares right um and similarly people talk about like the philosophy of liberty as though there is like one coherent story to be told right that starts with like people's moral views and and there are certain like specific ones that you have to embrace as part of the philosophy of liberty that lead you to like certain public policies or whatever exactly and they want the whole kit and caboodle like together there are people who talk about the philosophy of liberty like that my whole our discussion today is an attempt to get people to stop saying Saying what I just said, you know, unreflectively, right? Right? Is this, is it, stop, stop doing that, right? Like, stop talking about it as though it's like a specific kind of bundle, right? And instead, talk about the policies in the language of like the people who you, who are talking to you, right? Like, people care very much about um, about poverty, right? And like, poverty is one of the most important things that we have to address. And so then you look out at the world and you go, well, what has happened over the last 100, 200 years? We've witnessed what Deirdre McCloskey calls the great enrichment. And then you can wonder like, well, which institutions, what policies led to um, the elimination of a lot of global poverty? And the answer seemed to be, in my judgment, they definitely include 
elements of the libertarian, like libertarian political institutions. So like free and open markets, globalization, freedom of trade, immigration, you know, these kinds of things have helped to alleviate poverty. So you can say to somebody who says that their primary like mission, their morality tells them that like the thing that matters the most is global poverty. You can tell them, well, the institutions of liberty, right, are an effective tool to pull people out of poverty. And so you should endorse those institutions for that reason. I don't, not because like, right, not because like people are self-owners or whatever, right? But for this other reason. So anyways, um, yeah, people conflate all of those things. I hope that our conversation helps at least some people to stop conflating it. Because like notice who we are reading out of the libertarian uh, movement, people like Ludwig von Mises. How can you read that person out of the movement? Clearly, if, if Ludwig von Mises is anything, he's a libertarian. So too with Friedrich Hayek. I understand that there are people who think that that's controversial. Those people are just wrong, period, full stop. <laughs> right? Yeah, especially, especially, especially in the context we're discussing. Absolutely, right? Yeah, so like Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, Robert Nozick, John Stuart Mill, John Locke, Adam Smith, David Hume, right? They are all libertarians. If your theory, if your view about what makes someone a libertarian reads those people out of the like group of people that count as libertarians, then your view needs work. You have the wrong view. And so then my question to you is, what do those people all have in common? Answer, it is not their convictions about ethics. Because they are utilitarian, natural rights theorists, con uh, broad, more broadly consequentialists, uh, there are some ethical egoists, and so on and so forth, right? They don't share. That is not what stitches them together. Instead, what stitches them together is a commitment to certain kinds of public policies, a commitment to certain kinds of political institutions, a commitment to a certain view about what the government ought to do but they have different moral reasons for coming to the same conclusion. So what makes someone a libertarian is that they endorse those public policies, that they endorse those political institutions. It is not that they think that everybody has a, it is not, by the way, here's, here's like the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on libertarianism says that like what libertarian, libertarians are people who uh, value individual liberty above all else or something to the effect of that. No, you can hate individual liberty and be a libertarian in principle. It is true as a sociological fact, not as a philosophical fact that most libertarians are going to value individual liberty. Now, there's a different way of putting it, right? One way that uh, it's like the, what you, you might wonder, well, what is this set of like libertarian political institutions? And then to answer that question, you can say something like, well, what institutions do people who embrace natural rights theory or self-ownership or the non-aggression principle, what institutions do they endorse? And you'll get a nice list and then you say, if you endorse those institutions, even if you are not a natural rights theorist, not a self-ownership person, um, not a non-aggression axiom kind of person, right? If you embrace those, those political institutions, then you count as a libertarian in the public policy sense of that word. Yeah, that, and that makes a lot of sense. So 
if I were to flip that around and someone came to you and said, Peter, and this is obviously just a completely made up example. I'm uh, Peter. I have the power to make the libertarian movement in, let's say, North America uh, better as a political movement. Uh, I'm going to be the chief of whatever party or whatever. I'm going to be some social sort of social thought leader. And I want to help spread the idea of what libertarianism is on the one hand. And I want to also um, explain to people more concisely what a libertarian is. You would, again, this is from a practical move, um, perspective in terms of the movement. You would advise them, what I'm hearing, is to basically, the way we can summarize this conversation, which is tell them to stick to the idea that libertarian, someone, what makes someone libertarian is what kind of political institutions and public institutions they're in favor for, not to get into all this yes. other stuff. That would be like the practical advice for how to, quote unquote, fix or improve the libertarian political movement broadly speaking if, if that, that's that's what i'm if, if someone's come to you with that a question that's what i'm hearing kind of the kind of thing you'd say because it would be conceptually clearer because that's the fact at a like a conceptual philosophical level right right you that is that is what the concept is and that is what it requires in terms of practical advice like what would make libertarianism more appealing to other people that's like a different question yeah that's yeah that's not what i meant by that that is different exactly and and to to sort of close as you said before <laughs> to tie the knot on the discussion of the libertarian party there are people who think that like this is actually you know they are trying to win elections um and they have had like i guess some local successes in the united states or whatever and i think that's that's fine too. That's fine too. Um, my own view is that like, um, I'm not a fan of partisanship period. So I, I kind of try to advise people not to be involved in political parties period, right? To instead focus on the policy issues and then to work with whomever agrees with you on that policy issue. If it's new Democrats, then work with new Democrats on that issue. If it's liberals, work with liberals. If it's conservatives, work with the conservatives, right? The the fear that I have is that like political parties, you know, they're they're people's identity, like it just ties you to that so much. And I think I think you can't like honestly look at the moral issues, you can't honestly look at policy without first checking with like what your political party says about that issue. Cause like people value their being a liberal, their being an NDP member, their being a conservative more than they value the truth about what will make the world a better place. I think that's sad. And so I, I recommend against uh, having said that, I have lots, you and I have lots of friends who are partisan and are incredibly thoughtful people who prioritize the right things. So my, my advice is a general piece of advice for people in general, but then there are exceptions to the rule. Those are people who often find themselves in conflict with their own political party and they prioritize what is right, what is good, and what is true over their team. 
and and not even and just to add to that point not even the the point about uh, self-identification and wanting to be on a team but also we haven't even begun and we're not going to start talking about that now that'd be a whole different episode to uh, bring in the discussion about how all the practical implications of of winning elections and if you if you hit your uh, your wagon to that partisan train basically you're into a whole different set of considerations that very well make you sacrifice your principles and what's good namely do you want your seat in the next election that's a whole different discussion so there's definitely problems that come with that peter our our, our time has has pretty much wound down here and as you know i want to make sure that the guest has has the last word in the episode to tie a knot on things put a finer point on the expiration of the question i think this part is going to sound very similar to things that, that you've said before so let me just say ultimately i think it's a great message you're trying to get across so peter one more time let me ask what do you hope the main takeaways is for someone listening to you here on what libertarianism actually is? To count as a libertarian, you have to endorse the libertarian set of political institutions. That's it. Your reasons for endorsing that libertarian set of political institu- in, uh, institutions can be as wide and varied as possible. Any moral view can lead you to libertarianism. Um. And some moral views will, of necessity, lead you to libertarianism, but no moral view is um, necessarily excluded from that endpoint. Peter Jaworski, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again. Thanks very much for having me. Revisiting this episode at this time is sort of an interesting thing. Um, when we originally recorded it, uh, there was a lot of things within the American libertarian movement that uh, were calling into question for many what exactly the term libertarianism itself meant. Uh, today, uh, some of the tides that caused this question seem to have changed or continued, um, but the question itself still remains. It seems like a lot of what Peter mentioned in this episode is still applicable today. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.